I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Derek Walker, who is the Chief Executive of the Wales Cooperative Centre. But you've done many other things as well, Derek, um, before you've become the Chief Executive of the Wales Cooperative Centre. Where are you from originally? I'm from Cumbran. So I was born and brought up in Cumbran. My family still live there. And I was born and brought up on a farm, a dairy farm, which is not what you normally associate with Cumbran. So it was a childhood um, with the best of both worlds in many respects, in that we were close to the town, but also lived in the countryside. We benefited from both of those aspects. And what did you study? At university, I studied languages and history. Having said that I had a great childhood in Cumbran, which I did, the first thing I wanted to do when I was 18 was to leave Cumbran, of course, and to move to London. I didn't really care what I would be studying uh, to some extent, but the main thing was to go to London. So I went to UCL and I studied what was called, at the time, maybe still called that, uh, Modern European Studies, which for me was modern history and French. Ah, very good. Okay. And at that time, did you have any particular aspirations in terms of what you wanted to do afterwards? Or was it just a sort of pure love of learning? I didn't have any clear idea about what I wanted to do. Journalism was one of the things that was in the back of my mind at that time that I thought I might go into. I'd always been interested in politics and political things, so that had been another thought. But in the end, I was very lucky in that I had nothing lined up, and in the, in the final year, they were looking for someone to be a stagiaire or an intern for a Brussels office of London local councils, who just recently opened a, an office in Brussels to... Uh, lobby for London's interests and for European funding and they were looking for an intern and they specifically came to the people on my course to see if they'd be interested because of what we were studying and I was lucky enough to get the gig. So I went off as my first job straight from university to work in Brussels as an intern for the Association of London Government which is now called London Councils and it's the London equivalent of the WLGA. So that gave you quite an insight into the workings of government on an international basis. It was a fantastic opportunity. It gave me a real insight into how government worked, but how Brussels worked and how the European Union worked. So I'd studied it to a certain extent. And but for someone at my age, it was such a great opportunity. I was working in a city with people from all over Europe, doing similar things and learning as we went. And I found the culture to be very uh, a very open one. So in terms of getting meetings or getting information from the European Commission in order to feed it back to our London borough councils, it was pretty straightforward, even for someone of my age who you know whose French wasn't that strong. So it was a fantastic experience, and I look back on it very fondly. Because, of course, the European Commission, the European Union more generally, has got a bit of a reputation in Britain as a very bureaucratic organisation where... Uh, the way in which it's organised is very opaque and people don't understand it, but you actually found that it was quite straightforward to deal with. I found it pretty open to deal with. Of course it's not perfect, no system is, but I've worked in Westminster, I've worked in Cardiff and I've worked in uh, Brussels and I found the system in Brussels and Cardiff to be much more similar than the systems in Cardiff and London. 
So in terms of the ease of getting meetings, the openness of discussions, I found both Cardiff, I do find Cardiff and I found Brussels to be a good place to work. And um, I enjoyed being part of what was taking place there, you know, people working together to to do important things collaboratively and internationally. So it was a fantastic experience. And you were over there for a couple of years? Just two years. What happened when you came back? So I got promoted and I came back to work in the London office of London Councils and I became a manager overseeing European policy and transport policy at different times. And the London Councils as an organisation was a very strategic organisation. It was led by John McDonnell at the time when I got recruited and who's gone on to do other things, as I'm sure you're aware. We were very focused as an organisation on some key strategic issues for London, uh, one of which was devolution and uh, a London mayor and assembly. So I wasn't in Wales at the time of devolution in Wales, but um, I did have a small part to play or, or I was witness to the work that went on to make the case for a, a London assembly. So you've been quite a committed devolutionist from those days. Yeah, absolutely. It was clear to me, working in London, that this was the right thing for London. It was crazy that there were 33 local authorities that were only encouraged to work together when things like transport and environment and economic development were done through not through proper structures. There were government offices at the time for the different regions of England and for London but the case for a London Assembly to really bring London together and to have a voice for London seemed to me to be uh, a very strong one. And I think it's proven to be uh, a successful concept and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It's got strong support from the people of London, I think, still. And at what stage did you return to Wales? I was away for, from Wales for about 10 years. So university working and then I travelled and lived in Australia for uh, about 18 months or so and moved back to Wales in 2001. What were you doing then? I came back to go back to university. My visa, working holiday visa had ended in, in Australia, and even though I'd thought at one stage I might stay in Australia, I decided to come back to Wales. I wanted to settle in Wales and make my life in Wales, and um, there was an opportunity to do a journalism master's at JOMEC at Cardiff University. So I applied and was successful in getting a place on that course. So I came back and did that Masters and started to work part-time as a policy officer for Stonewall Cymru during my time as a student. And in fact, you rose to become the head of Stonewall in Wales, didn't you? I wouldn't put it as grandly as that. I was the first employee of Stonewall Cymru. Um, So a number of other people had lobbied uh, in light of devolution, for Stonewall to have its pre- have a presence in Wales, and I was one of two of the first employees. So I was the there were two of us, one in community development and one in policy and public affairs, and so I was recruited to be the policy and public affairs officer. So I was effectively one of the first employees of Stonewall Cymru. You know, I'm proud of those times actually because we put down, I think, between us, good strong roots for the organisation, and it's um, still going strongly and the team have grown and they're doing all sorts of important work in terms of equality in the workplace and in schools. So um, it's gone on to bigger and better things. But we, um, 
we um, we set it on that course, I, I like to think. So in terms of the way in which the LGBT community has been treated from the time when you joined the organisation to now, how would you characterise what has happened in the intervening period? I would say there's a there's a good story to tell. I guess, you know, I decided that I couldn't. I didn't want to live in Wales when I was 18. And already by 2001, the world had changed significantly uh, in, in, in Wales too. So when you were 18, was there quite a bit of homophobia around? I perceived it to be the case that it wasn't the right place to be an openly gay man to live in Cumbran at the time. That was my perception. So I felt it was that I needed to leave in order to have a, a life as an openly gay man. But that had changed significantly by 2001. And I think the situation in Wales and the attitude of the Welsh Government and the National Assembly has always been very supportive of work to promote equality, including LGBT equality. So we we always had good support on a cross-party basis, to be fair, to fund the work that we were doing and to do what the Assembly could do to support LGBT people in Wales. So um, if it wasn't about legislation, it was about guidance in schools for how teachers talk about um, LGBT people. I think we have come a long way, and it's for me it's fantastic to see we have out Assembly members who are lesbian and gay in the Assembly for the first time, but that cascades throughout society. The world has changed completely. But there's still a job to do. So I think it was just this week there was a survey out about attitudes to LGBT people in Wales and 15% of people were still uncomfortable with same-sex relationships. Well, that's a massive improvement probably from what it was 20 years ago, but there's still you know, a job to do, I think. And uh, Stonewall Cymru are doing a good job to try and change the minds and influence that final 15%. Over the last couple of years, there's been what one might describe as quite a distressing outbreak of disputes relating particular to the trans community. And there are people who are within the LGBT family, if you like, who have got very polarised views on this. And it, it actually gets sometimes quite nasty and there have been meetings disrupted, there's been some really unpleasant stuff on social media, in a way that we don't expect any more relating to gay people. What do you think that's all about, Derek? Well, it's pretty complicated, and it's disappointing to see that. I've always seen the LGBT community as having a, a real affinity, and I think within Wales we were early in ensuring the LGBT LGB and the T sat together and campaigned together and had an affinity for you know each other's causes and supported each other's causes. Of course, there are slightly different issues there, one um, being about sexuality and one um, more about gender identity. And some people think that those things should be perhaps dealt with differently. So, um, But that's not my view. I think I'm very pleased to see it when LGB people support the trans community because they are going through um, some very tough times and I think you know many trans people have a very difficult 
environment and they need all the support that they can get. After your period with Stonewall, I think you then went to work for the World CUC. I did. You were there for a few years, weren't you? Five years, yeah. What were your observations at the time about the state of the trade union movement in Wales and where do you think it is now? I loved working for the Wales CUC, a very committed trade unionist still. It was great to be working for the TUC because um, the TUC remains an organisation of influence and that was fantastic to be part of, to be able to develop policies and ideas and for people to want to listen to those ideas and to uh, see those ideas happen. The types of things that I was working on at the time were things around equal pay for men and women, equality in the workplace, looking at how relationships between the public sector, trade unions and Welsh Government were working and could be improved. So for me, they were really interesting areas to work in. What was uh, obvious at the time and continues to be the case was that uh, trade unions needed to find different ways to organise people and to bring people into the trade union movement. I guess many young people are leaving school not knowing what a trade union is and the workplace is changing dramatically uh, so that more people are freelancers or self-employed. At the time that I was in the trade union movement or working for the TUC, there was uh, increasing focus on thinking about how you organise people in different types of workplace rather than perhaps the traditional workplaces of big public sector and big private sector employers and I'm pleased to say that's you know that's still going on and we work very closely with the Wales TUC in different areas so my current role is at the Wales Cooperative Centre working to promote uh, and develop social enterprises and cooperatives and we've been working with some of the trade unions to support some of their members to set up cooperatives to protect their position in the workplace and to uh, promote their interests. So two recent examples would be the new taxi co-op in Cardiff, which we played a small role in supporting, which was instigated by GMB members to enable taxi drivers to have a fairer cut from the fare. But we've also worked with organisations that are working with musical instrument teachers. So many musical instrument teachers were made redundant from local authorities and taking on as freelancers and they've come together in um, cooperative structures so that they can work together to negotiate with local authorities when they're negotiating work. So Denbyshire Music Cooperative is one example of that. So this in your new role really or the role that you have now is very much geared towards trying to take forward a different way of organising industry in a sense, isn't it? Because up until now, we've been very used to having very large workplaces where you've got an employer who may be based in Wales, but perhaps with the bigger organisations tends to be based outside Wales. And there are many people who would argue that what Wales needs for the future from an economic point of view is more homegrown industries. And that's where, I guess, social enterprise comes in because, you know, the idea that which is sometimes pushed that ordinary people who've been made redundant from working in a factory can overnight become entrepreneurs 
is sometimes, I think, a little fanciful because I think only a certain proportion of people are cut out to be entrepreneurs. Whereas if you had a group of people working together who each got different skills with the professional help of people who know what they're doing, and the obvious example that we know is uh, Tower Connery, mm. where that happened. Um, do you see that as a major way in the future of employment in Wales? Absolutely. And that's always been the um, one of the main purposes of the Wales Cooperative Centre. So we were set up in the early 80s uh, when there was a time of high unemployment and um, we were set up by a group of trade unionists who felt that there was a, a value in developing cooperative businesses that would employ, could employ people in areas that where there was little employment and would mean that the wealth stayed in that area because the profits would be distributed amongst the cooperative members. And they were inspired by a trip to Mondragon in Spain where they'd seen that happen in the Basque region of Spain. And so we think, you know, there still remains a strong case for doing that. We know that there are big issues of deprivation across Wales, areas where unemployment is still high, people are still having to travel long, often having to travel long distances for work and not get paid a very good wage. I think social enterprises and cooperative business models uh, have a, a, a really strong role to play in supporting a more inclusive economy. That's the jargon of the moment, isn't it? But um, they are businesses. They make a profit. Uh, it's what they do with their profits that makes the difference. And that profit is distributed to members or it goes back in the business or it goes to a social purpose. But they are successful economic models. And we are seeing a fair sign of growth in, in the sector. So in the next month or so, we will be publishing some the latest research to show what's happened to the sector in the last two years. And it's showing that the sector is doing pretty well. And actually, during the downturn, 2008 and onwards, the sector did relatively well to the traditional business sector. So um, we'd like to see it to being much bigger. But it is it is continuing to grow. If you have people who come from a workforce that has been downsized and maybe even shut down, how do you go about persuading people that they needn't be inhibited about forming a cooperative? Because I guess that many people who have traditionally been employed would find it a little daunting to, to actually embark on a social enterprise like that. What do you say to people to say, look, you know, up until now, you know, may have been employed for 20 years or something, but those days are gone and you, you can do things in a different way and prosper. Well, I guess we say a number of things to people that are interested. Often people don't know what a cooperative is, so you, you need to explain the basics about how it works. We do say, you know, it's, a, it's an enterprise and it's tough to set up a business of any type, so it's not for everyone. And it's not the answer to everybody's problems, setting up a cooperative. There are advantages, and you've alluded to some of them, in that you are working collaboratively. It's what we call a multi-stakeholder business. So it's not all on your shoulders. You can work with others who bring different skills to the party to enable that business to be successful. 
So it can take more time to set up a co-op or a social enterprise because there are more people involved in those discussions and deciding what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. But the evidence shows that when you do set it up, you're more likely to survive because probably because you've done more of that discussion prior to that and you've brought in more experience and skills uh, to enable that to happen. And we do say, you know, thanks to Welsh Government European funding, well, there is there is support out there through us to help you on that journey. So that can be to help you set up and to continue to grow. And yeah, we, we see a fair amount of interest. You refer to European funding. Well, we don't know what's going to happen, do we? But it may very well be the case that European funding is not available in the future. That would be a matter of, um, of great regret, wouldn't it? If that, if that money is not replaced with funding coming from Whitehall, presumably. It would be a huge blow to the Welsh economy, I think. As the Wales Cooperative Centre, we were one of the few businesses that were openly remain prior to the referendum when many businesses and many charitable organisations decided to keep their mouths shut and their powder dry. But we were always clear as an organisation, my board was very clear, that this was a bad choice for the Welsh economy to exit the European Union. And there has been lots of money invested in Wales, as we know, um, for the Welsh economy, for skills, for society more generally, that has done a lot of good. And it will be hugely missed, in my view, if it goes completely. If it's replaced, which I know Welsh Government are campaigning for, pound for pound, then that will mitigate some of the, the damage that will be done. But damage is being done with businesses leaving Wales and the potential difficulty for businesses that want to export as a result of not being in the single market. So I personally do not see any upside from leaving the European Union. It's just managing the the problems and the difficulties that uh, that, we're, we're, that we're facing. And as a business, we're having to look at that as well. So as I mentioned, we, we do receive um, European funding for our work, but we are now planning to see how how that could work if less European funding is around and how we could continue to support our clients and to grow the social economy in Wales with less money to do so. What sort of uh, attitude towards social enterprise would you say that the private sector manifests? Do they see it as a bit of a threat to their rule, if you like? Not really. I don't see private sector businesses worried about the social enterprise sector. In fact, I see increasingly private sector businesses wanting to work with social enterprises and make sure that in their supply chain they are putting more business the way of social enterprises. So we've been working with Legal and General, a big uh, employer in South Wales, and they have been uh, investing in interest-free loan finance for the social enterprise sector. So there are many businesses like that. I think there is a space for all these different types of business models. I think the social enterprise sector needs to have a bigger share of the economy and the economy needs to be bigger more generally in Wales. I don't see much sign of private sector businesses being threatened. If there were to be a sign, that might be in the area of social care, where a lot of social care is delivered in the private sector and there are moves to put more of that closer to the public sector. It's a commitment Mark Drakeford has made in his he made in his leadership campaign to have more social care delivered by cooperatives and social enterprises 
So where I've encountered some feeling of being anti-social enterprise, it's been in the social care sector. And how can that be combated? Well, I think it doesn't really need to be combated in the sense that um, I think the case for social enterprise and cooperatives to deliver social care is a pretty strong one, you know, and we will continue to make it strongly. The social enterprise model, social care cooperative model, enable users to have uh, service users, it's a horrible term, but people who are receiving this, this service to have a much greater say in how care is provided as a result of being part of the membership or on the board of, of these structures. And through social enterprise models, you ensure that there isn't a private profit creamed off the top of social care provision. That's all reinvested back into the business to provide better quality care. So, you know, that's a pretty compelling case, I would say. Chris, there's been a lot of concern about some private sector operation operatives who uh, contract holders who are trying to get the carers to attend too many uh, individuals during the course of their shift. And there have also been some awful stories about how the workers have not actually been paid for travelling between the various um, individuals that they're seeing. Uh, there's a lot of exploitation around. So what do, you see, what do you say that the social enterprise model is a way, if you like, of moving away from exploitation? You would hope so, absolutely. I mean, the values of a social enterprise or a cooperative are important at the very outset of uh, the starting of those businesses. And uh, as a result of having those values at their heart, you would uh, expect those businesses to ensure staff were paid properly and that the care was provided uh, to the the best of their ability. I know, you know, we know there are big issues of budgets and lack of funding for social care, um, but the social care organisations that we work with and that I know of would see themselves as being uh, organisations that put the interests of of um, service users and staff uh, first and foremost. And, you know, I would expect that model to see very few, if any, of those poor practices. About what proportion of the Welsh economy is social enterprise at the moment? I'm not sure of the exact percentage, but we're talking in terms of turnover of around about three billion um, for the social enterprise sector. So that is growing substantially from the last time that we did this survey. So it's a it's a fair proportion. It needs to be bigger, and it has the potential to be so. But it uh, it's a fair proportion already. And obviously, if it increases, would you say that people are likely to have a better relationship with their employer if they are part of the team? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we do is to promote employee ownership. So you mentioned Tower Colliery. Well, often what we do as a succession route is we support employees to take over the business from the owners who are looking to exit the business. And where that is happening and where you see employee-owned businesses or cooperative social enterprise businesses where people have a stake in the business, you see higher productivity. And that, to me, is common sense. You know, if people have a an ownership stake in the business, they have more responsibility and ownership for the success of that business. So you see better results. Um, so if we were to see more businesses employee-owned, I think that would go some way to addressing the productivity issues that we have in the, in the Welsh economy. 
because it's often been said that the Welsh economy is too dependent on the public sector. Whereas, I suppose, social enterprise, in a sense, is part of the private sector. It's very much part of the private sector. I mean, they have they are businesses. They're just different types of businesses. And as I said, they do different things with their profits. But they're commercial entities set up as companies or societies that are business models. So they probably seem to be closer to the public sector, uh, but they're very much business models, not public sector models. Is there any restriction on the type of businesses that can become social enterprises? Do you mean in terms of the sector they might work in? Yes. Not really. I mean, I guess the model lends itself well to particular sectors, so you see more social enterprises in particular uh, sectors of the economy. We see a lot in terms of housing associations, for example, increasing numbers in social care. Agriculture has traditionally mm. been an area where we've seen a lot of uh, cooperatives. But the the model is neutral in that sense. You know, it can apply to any sector. Um, it's just a way of doing business, but it can work in, in, in any area. So um, it's pleasing to see an increasing number of tech businesses, for example, that are co-ops and social enterprises. There's a great co-op in London that is bringing together freelancers who work on data and client relationship management systems and on websites who've come together as a, as a cooperative to offer a, a digital service. So um, it can work in all different areas of the economy. One thing that's always struck me in comparing, should we say, the Irish economy with that in Britain is that farmers in Ireland have been far more canny in terms of cooperating to produce goods and selling them themselves than has been the case in Britain, where you have tended to have a situation where the big supermarkets have a great deal of power and leverage. And very often you will find farmers complaining about the pressure that's put on them to reduce the price. Whereas if you go to Ireland, and I remember years ago being in Dundalk, which is obviously just south of of the border with Northern Ireland, you will actually see there a cooperative, which is um, a farmer's cooperative, which is engaged not simply in producing uh, goods, but they'll also be selling the goods as well. Why do you think it is perhaps that we haven't gone as far down that road over here as we could have done? I wish I knew. I mean, some of the biggest cooperatives, as I've said, are in the agricultural sector in Wales, so Carnarvonshire Creameries is a fair-sized agricultural co-op. But I've asked my dad this very question. And why don't we, as a, as a farmer, why haven't we seen more cooperatives in the agricultural sector? And his response, which I'm not sure I agree with, is that we don't have the culture of cooperation that um, requires or encourages people to work together. It's a much more competitive environment. But I pointed to the fact that actually... When I was growing up and after I'd left home, I could see very clearly that he was cooperating with fellow farmers in all sorts of regards. So they wouldn't have enough people to uh, just on the one farm to bring in the hay. They wouldn't have the money to buy the machinery that they needed uh, on their own to, um, to harvest. So they bought machinery together and they worked together to help each other out when it was needed. I think there is you know, a a real culture to um, support cooperative action in the agricultural sector. 
and um, others think so too. So one of the things that we are hoping to launch later this year is a, a new project that will have an element specifically working with the agricultural sector. And because we'd done some research a few years ago to look at the sector and um, the overwhelming feeling was that there was a real potential to do more to support farmers and others in the food and agricultural industry to come together in cooperative structures to benefit their businesses. Now, there have been some pretty dire predictions about what would happen if there were a no-deal Brexit, but to a point as well, any kind of Brexit which... uh, many people would consider, many experts, I know that they are a reviled breed in some quarters, but many experts would say that any kind of Brexit is going to be damaging to the economy, there will be job losses. That could result, counterintuitively perhaps, in an increase in cooperatives and social enterprises in the future. If people have lost their jobs, what are they supposed to do? And that, I suppose opens up the possibility of people working collaboratively together in a way that they haven't thought of up until now. Yeah, it's possible. Sometimes that is the case that people turn to cooperatives and social enterprise business structures when others have failed, and we will be there to support them to do that if that proves to be the case. But my view is, you know, you turn to cooperatives and social enterprises in terms of crisis, but also in terms of opportunity, because... You're setting up structures that um, are much fairer in how they operate for staff and customers and in how they distribute their profits. So I wish we were to see it much more as the default model for setting up social, uh, setting up businesses. We'd look to social enterprise. But unfortunately, too often, people still leave school, as I did, without having a clue what a cooperative or a social enterprise is. I did a a talk the other day to Cardiff University business students and many of those were not familiar with what a cooperative or a social enterprise is. So until we get really into the education system so that people have a much better understanding about what a co-op is, then we're not going to perhaps see the step change in the number of these types of businesses. So we really need to focus on education, I think, to raise awareness of the cooperative option. Derek Walker, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.